Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. So here's a confession, y'all, or at least a sign that I'm self-aware, which I hope those of you who listen to this show regularly already know. Detoxicity strives to be an equal opportunity podcast. There is value here for all men, regardless of their age, race, class status, sexual orientation, or preferred type of relationship. And I also want to add that, of course, the tagline for the podcast is by men, about men, for everyone, which means that you do not have to be a man to receive any of the stories or the lessons being taught not that they're lessons being taught to identify or get knowledge from any of the experiences that people discuss on this podcast hopefully that's clear uh i'm aware that the majority of my guests so far have been cishet white dudes uh or dudes that publicly identify as cishet white dudes i don't know that every het dude that has been on this podcast is as het as they may present now uh, one might argue that cishet white dudes are the ones that need to do the most work when it comes to all of the things that we regularly regularly discuss on this show. Uh, and while I'm not sure that I agree with that, I of course welcome the stories of cishet white dudes, or rather progressive cishet white dudes, as well as anyone else is doing the work externally and internally. That said, I would really like to have a more diverse representation of guests, so I'm extra happy when I get to book a guest who is not cisgender, and that has not happened yet, although it will be happening soon, uh, who is not straight, and or who is not white. This episode's guest thankfully checks off two of those boxes. Ty McKinney, like most of our guests, is a creative. Uh, he sings, he plays, he aspires to working in film alongside music, so he does a lot of creative things. Uh, Ty and I don't actually discuss the creative process too much. We don't talk a lot about music, we don't talk a lot about uh, his directing aspirations. We cover it very briefly at the beginning of the podcast. Um, most of our conversation goes a little bit deeper than that, as, as do most of the conversations on this podcast. But I feel like we devote even less time to the arts than we normally do. Uh, Ty happens to be black and gay, and uh, he grew up in an environment where his queerness was definitely not accepted. Uh, as a black queer man whose experience is significantly different than Ty's, uh, hashtag we're not a monolith. I found his ongoing journey fascinating and inspiring. Uh, we go deep on a variety of topics. He shares his coming out story. He talks about people who have been uh, beacons for him in his self-discovery. And uh, he really opens him, himself up here. So uh, here is Ty in his own words. Check him out. 
Hey, my name is Ty McKinney. I am a singer, songwriter, sometimes actor, occasional filmmaker, all around music industry, entertainment industry professional. And uh, I'm here on Detoxicity to talk about how I'm getting through my toxic masculinity. (laughs) I love it. That that might be the smoothest intro anyone has ever done on this show ever. (laughs) So you're going to be the template for everybody going forward. So, so I knew that you were a musician. I did not know about the film part, and I did, certainly did not know about the filmmaker part. Mm-hmm. Have you actually made movies or shorts or anything like that? I so when I was in school in undergrad, I my major was in film, and my minor was in theater. And my focus really in my film program was documentary filmmaking. So my projects that I did in school were documentaries, mostly geared to behind the scenes content for different types of artists. So I did a documentary on one of my my bros, Marco. He's a dancer. He's more than just a dancer, but at the time he was just dancing. And I did a documentary about his process and how he got started to where he is now. I did a documentary about interracial dating for a media culture class, I think. That was interesting because that was like my first time interviewing subjects that were not friends of mine. They weren't mm. like, okay, can I ask you to do this for me? They were within my school's community, and I was working with a partner as well, like another director. So that was an interesting topic, especially in Atlanta, because of, that's where I'm from. And so the South is very, I wouldn't say taboo when it comes to interracial relationships, but, well, Atlanta specifically, because you actually, if you go down there, you'll see that happening a little bit more. But it's within certain communities, it's like, oh, and certain type of interracial relationship so black man white woman that whole thing Mm -hmm. Uh, so i've done those type of projects and then just done behind the scenes stuff for different type of artists as i've gone through the artistic worlds and even my own music videos i directed them that's basically what i've done but i would love to do a actual narrative like a short scripted film i i put that out there in the atmosphere earlier this year because i was like well i could do this I can do this. I have the things at my disposal, like the the wheelhouse of skill set. I just need to find the story to put it together and then getting to more long form scripted projects and whatnot, because that's a dream. I want to do movies, too. You are going to be multimedia. You're going to run everything. I mean, (laughs) theater was my first thing that I ever did as a kid. I love TV. I was raised by television and, <laughs> and movies. I, I, I would say that to people. And music, I just love all of it. So for me to like only be like this one thing, it stresses me out because I would like to do everything. I'm like, hey, let me get in the studio for like three-hour session and we're going to go do a show at Broadway and we're going to go do a new segment or something for Good Morning America or something like that. I'm very much that like, okay, well, I can't do all those things. but Right. Now it's more so like, okay, let's tailor. What is the primary focus? And my mom has been a big help in that since I was a late teenager, early adult. Because she always knew as a kid that I was just like artsy entertainer person. So she's like, which one do you want? What's your primary focus? What do you like if you unfortunately die tomorrow? What is the one thing that you just like, I have to do this. And music is, is that for now. And was that always something that you were interested in like some people have a moment when they're like oh i want to do the arts and that moment could occur 
in elementary school. It could occur in high school. I feel like most people who decide to go into some form of the arts, it's a decision that is made when they are young. Were you always like, I want to be an entertainer or I want to be a creative? Yeah, I, I was very much that kid. My first time I ever sang in front of people, I was five or six. Oh, wow. It was our church. I went to a Christian school, but it was connected to the church that I grew up going to. And I did, it was a Christmas recital. And me and this other kid, we had a, a, a number <laughs> in the musical. And unfortunately, I forgot like the words, like the first two lines. Because when I get nervous, oh, I forget words. <laughs> this is, it still happens. Even as an adult, I will either blurb a word because I'm just super nervous. But then I turned it out and I did my part. And, and from there, I just kept doing stuff. And my mom would tell me that people would come to her and be like, you need to put him in movies or something, like find him an agent or something because he just has that smile and he's just very charismatic. And I'm like, oh yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like your mom was supportive from Jump. My understanding is generally that when a kid expresses that they want to do something creative, parents are not always the most supportive. That is true. So my mom was supportive. My dad was not. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He very much wanted me to do the traditional route of basically being as black men do. Black men want their sons to be many versions of them. I don't know that that's exclusive to black men. Yeah, it's not exclusive to black men. That's in general. (laughs) Yeah. most, Most dads, particularly old school dads. Yeah. Not progressive dads. I don't know what you would call them. Want their That's kids to, to be. Yeah. Progressive. I mean, not what's the opposite of progressive? Regressive? Rigid? Mo- yeah. We'll go with rigid. Rigid. <laughs> <laughs> what was it that your dad wanted you to do? He wanted me to be an engineer because I was very good at math. Math was literally my best subject ever mm. since I was younger. I would always excel in math. I even took. Uh, advanced trigonometry as a junior and I was a senior class and a lot of <laughs> seniors were like asking me for help and low-key cheating on me but I let them because I was a nerd and I wanted to be cool I took AP calculus oh damn Ty if someone had told me oh if you take physics that'll help you with sort of frequencies and all that stuff I might have like really with the physics route or something like that or just went into the music engineering space but yeah he wanted me to go the straight lace route go get a business degree I I was an accounting major when I first went to college and as I said I went to film so you can already understand how that (laughs) transition Mm -hmm. went but yeah there's always been a thing with my dad where as far as if I wanted to do something he didn't agree with it And it would just be the smallest thing, like clothing or hairstyles. I didn't always used to be bald. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, some of us are bald by necessity. I am by necessity, unfortunately. Okay, all right. (laughs) It's a necessity. Luckily, it works for me, but it was not a sort of like, oh, this is a stylistic choice. But anything that I would sort of choose to express my own identity or my own passions, he would just not agree with. Why Um, do you think that is? One part of it, I think it was definitely homophobia and also just ignorance because how he grew up, he grew up in a single parent household and he had to grow up really fast. And he was very much a guy's guy, like he played football, but he was a cool dude. He was smart, like he was cool. He grew up in the hood too. And he has a kid who is this very much artsy, like 
emotionally intact, very sensitive, very expressive kid. And I, I did not fit the mold of like what I guess a, his ideal of a black son would be like someone who's into sports. I want to watch the Super Bowl because of the halftime show, <laughs> not because of the actual Super Bowl. Right. I got into football later on because I did do sports and he put me in flag football. I was in basketball. I did tennis for a bit. I did swimming stuff. Like I did, I did the sports stuff. So it wasn't like I never did sports in my life, but that was earlier in my life. And then once I got to realize, or once I realized what I really like to do, which is dance, sing, act, make movies. That's what we did. So I think it was definitely homophobia, but more so I was a culture shock to him in a way that like he grew up in a certain way. And then here I'm coming kind of counteracting or being an opposite of what he is and him having sort of like a cognitive dissonance. Like this is my child, but this person feels so foreign and not relatable to me or unrelatable to me. So I think that was a factor of just how our relationship is, but he found ways in supporting me. So he would take me to rehearsals when I did community theater. He would come to my shows in college, but definitely my mom had like this number one fan from the jump. That's dope. And I've been thinking a lot about homophobia and parenting. And for me, there was never any acknowledgement about my sexuality when I was young. I was still trying to figure that shit out myself. But I do think that my elders noticed something different and tried to reverse that behavior, kind of. I'm trying to be kind of delicate about the way I say it. Yeah, yeah. And without explicitly saying, hey, Mike, we think this behavior is feminine or we think this behavior is something else, I think they just tried to redirect me. I'm not an actor, I'm not a singer, but I've always had an interest in music and I don't think that my elders viewed that as a particularly masculine and there was definitely the sense of we're going to put you out in the street and toughen you up and get you to play football and you get your ass kicked a couple of times and that that will make you quote unquote a man. Right. Uh, and back then you couldn't really call it homophobia because they didn't know about me. I didn't know about me. I didn't know what homophobia was. Right. But you can now relate it back to me as an adult and be like, oh, well, they sensed something and we're trying to redirect as if they had a choice in the matter, trying to steer you away from that. I'm just wondering if you felt like that was the case with you. I definitely felt like it was the case in certain ways, like the whole sports thing. I think that was definitely a way for both my parents. I don't want to just put the sort of <laughs> blame on my dad. I think it was definitely a way to make sure I was more well-rounded and yeah. to also toughen me up. and Because I had an affinity to be with girls just as friends i just related to more to, to girls i would hang around with more of my female cousins because that's who i would be around they would just be there i even have a younger sister i didn't really have like brothers <laughs> or anything so um i definitely think that was a way to make sure he's not too feminine or just feminine at all sure because i even remember one summer i would stay with my grandmother in north carolina and there was this neighborhood girl in the apartment complex and she was like is your 
your parents going to be annoyed that you talk like a girl or something? Because I was hanging around her and my female cousins all summer. And I guess my vernacular changed and whatnot, but she wanted to call it out. And I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about, but I hope I'm not going to get in trouble. But yeah, I even was put in karate. I was in Taekwondo. Oh, wow. I'm technically an orange belt, but I I low-key am a green belt. Because I just didn't do the ceremony. My mom didn't want to pay for it. I ain't been in no fight fight. But in I, case I you need it. In case it's good to have it. that in your in your back pocket. In, in just back in pocket. case. In my back pocket. Yes. Roll that back for a second. I remember talking to a therapist once. And they were like, do you think that your folks had the thought process of being black is already hard. Being black and queer is twice the difficulty. And... I'm older than you, but I think our parents still come from the generation of being queer is a choice. I mean, not that people now don't think that being queer is a choice, but do you think that maybe there was a sense of, let's try to make him not have as hard a life as he could if this is the future that's laid out for him? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. I think my mom made a point about like, you already are black, being gay on top of it. That's just a lot. And I I don't wish that for you. And that that really hurt. I don't think that she said it like verbatim, but it was alluding to that it's already hard enough as it is as a black man. So to add that, it's just like, why? (laughs) Like, why? And it definitely sucks because even in their misguided, homophobic way of saying it, it's there's them saying that I love you and I don't want life to be harder for you. And going through a bunch of thorns to get to that rose, it just hurts still. Like it doesn't negate the pain of you trying to basically be a parent to me, but it still hurt because right. Yeah. At the end of the day, life is gonna life. People are gonna not approve of me, but having your own family not really be by your side and support it just makes it even harder. No, I agree with you. And I think what people still struggle to understand is that it's not like we woke up one morning and we're like, oh, I'm going to be queer. I'm going to be gay. It wasn't a conscious choice. I mean, I don't think it was an unconscious choice. You are (laughs) who you are. And there's nothing that as a parent or as an elder that anybody could have done to make it any different. Actually, they probably made it worse. Not make the level of queerness worse, but make the self-acceptance process more difficult. Yeah, I feel like that's exactly what happened. Because in my story, I just got the flashback of when I really knew, or the start of when I was figuring it out. I knew when I was six years old. (laughs) I knew very early on that I was different. I just didn't know what the phrasing of it was, but I knew Mm. I liked dudes. I liked boys. (laughs) I had a crush on this this kid named Denzel. And he was five. And I remember we were going down the slide one day. I think we we're third grade, second or third grade. And I don't know where my romantic ass got this notion, probably from watching too many romantic comedies, because my life is like a rom com in my head. And the sun was setting. I think we were waiting for our parents to come pick us up. And I was, can I kiss you before we go down the slide? And he was like, no, we're guys. And I was like, okay. And then he went down the slide by himself. And I was just up there alone. <laughs> Oh, but I just that's heartbreaking. Oh, my first heartbreak, man. (laughs) But I knew then that I liked guys like how girls like guys. Like, oh, I think Denzel is cute. Fast forward to whatever year, whenever 
we all started to have real crushes on each other, like around middle school, high school. I just knew now with a little bit more cognizance and just like aware of culture and stuff and a group and church and stuff. Yeah, being gay is bad in the eyes of the Lord. <laughs> and I feel like there, there was very much signs because even when I was in elementary school, literally my childhood best friend, actually, we started experimenting. And I was very much reluctant because I didn't know what was going on, to be quite honest with you. I was very much like, okay, kind of like, you want to kiss me? Okay, cool. And we're like 10. <laughs> right, <laughs> I'm right. Like, okay. And we're just like low-key making out <laughs> in his room. And my friend's mom had security cameras around the house. I oh. think she saw us. And somehow my parents knew. And I didn't know what was going on. I just knew I was in deep trouble because my parents were so upset. And I was like, what happened? And they were like, we know that you and such and such were making out or you were doing things with each other. I was literally just like heart sinking, like I'm going to die. And I wasn't allowed to see that friend and didn't really see him again until like five years later. So we were like 15. Wow. But it turns out we're both gay. (laughs) I'm shocked. Yeah, I'm so shocking, right? Shocking. <laughs> it is, that is the most surprising thing I've heard in ages. Oh, my God. At <laughs> least y'all are both out, and it's not a situation, because I think there are a lot of situations where that happens, and you turn into adults, and one of them is in the closet and has tried to get married to, or maybe not in the closet, maybe that person's bisexual, but has not fully accepted their sexuality yet, and I think you serve as a constant reminder of fact that ultimately they're not being truthful to themselves so that is kind of at least a happy ending that both of y'all figured y'all shit out yeah even when we reconnected it was weird because i was back in or not even say back in the closet i was deeper in the closet wow i was deeper in the closet but i was also like i'm waiting to come out i'm just getting ready for my opportunity and i felt like he was also in that same space, but we never really got to talk about it because we were both still in our closets. I grieve about it a little bit because I'm like, man, regardless of if we were going to be together, like that fairy tale ending, we could have been each other's orthodox and support yeah. systems because yeah. we had that shared experience with each other. And so fortunately, we didn't have that, but he is out and he's doing his thing, living his life, and so am I. And that's the silver lining of it all. Kudos. Kudos. So (laughs) when was the moment when you were finally like, okay, I need to come out? Oh, man. It was my junior year of college. And there was this guy who I was working with. I was a resident assistant at the time. And for those who don't know, those are basically the dorm camp counselors. I had to do that because I had to get that room and board. <laughs> yeah. Scholarship. That's, that's right. <laughs> I had that's to you right. Know, get these college loans down, okay? But uh, I basically started falling for this fellow resident assistant. <laughs> and we just had this very emotional situation where it was like I couldn't vocalize that I liked him, but I just felt very enamored by him and I wanted to be around him. Basically, I had a whole crush. But my whole elementary brain hasn't got a chance to actually have these emotions you know, as an adult or teenager. I'm like, I just feel really tethered to you. I don't understand. <laughs> and that's how I would explain it to him. And he would say the same thing. So it would be kind of like, 
okay. And then I didn't realize it was full blown until he was going through something and he was giving me the silent treatment and I was upset, honey. I was like, why is he not talking to me? Like I would say hey to him and he would just walk by me and I was like, oh no, we're not going to do. Like I would feel so offended. And one day somebody was like, the way y'all act, I swear y'all act like a married couple. couple. And I was like, ding, 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 ding. You like him. <laughs> it was the emotional attachment that I had to him that made me realize I was like, gay. Because I would try to say, like, I just have these little one-off things with guys. Like, it's a physical thing. It's not an emotional thing at all. Because it would never pan out emotionally with a guy. So the fact that I had this guy that was very much emotions first, I was like, yeah, he's nice to look at, but that's not the thing that's drawing me to him. I want to get to know him better. I want to be all up in his grill, up on his face. I got to know his mom a little bit when she came to visit and stuff like that. I knew his brothers. I was very much like trying to get into his life. (laughs) And so that's why I was like, oh yeah, no, you like this dude. (laughs) And I was having major anxiety. I had anxiety even as a child, but it grew a lot in high school and it grew to a a very much a breaking point in college because I was actually getting closer to facing myself and like, oh no, you're gay. You've known this your whole life, but you are now at this place, the the space to own it and to do something about it now. You're not at home with your parents. You're in college. You can bring guys over. And that's what I was doing around freshman year. Like I was hooking up with a senior. Hey, all right. My play that I was in. I'm clapping it up for you right now, Ty. Yeah, I did my things as a freshman. I wasn't like partying, partying. I was just like, I'm doing my thing. Literally on the DL. Yes. <laughs> but facing this guy, the other resident assistant, uh, RA, I was just more emotional and I couldn't ignore it anymore. And it was eating me up. Like I, he walked by one day, I was working the front desk and he's wearing some nice gym clothes and it showed off his physique. And I was hyperventilating, like truly hyperventilated. And I Damn. could not breathe. I was passing out, but it wasn't like him obviously looking great, but it was thought of him and it shattered my reality. It was like, this is the truth. I'm here, here he's walking truth that you like men. You want to be in relationships with men. You've always wanted this. You can't avoid it anymore. And you're only getting older. You're about to be 21. Like, come on, dude. It's in your face. And yeah. so I was just thinking about all the things I was going to lose. My family, my support system, like, where am I going to live? All those things that was rushing through my mind and I was spiraling. And that's what led to the hyperventilation. That's what led to me <laughs> going to the hospital. And they're basically like yeah you just you got your electric like screwed up physical stuff was happening and they were like yeah whatever's going on and mentally you gotta let it out <laughs> and my grandmother who came with my mom to the hospital she was just like well honey got you in love and i was like no 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 <laughs> no of course not of course ever make you course think not. something like that why would you even say that right. like absolutely what? not <laughs> and so the fact that she knew that and she had no idea what was going on I'm like, yeah, hmm. it's done. It's a wrap. The closet's open. <laughs> and so that's where I started. At that time, I was like, you're about to be 21 next so, year. You can't right. just be in the closet anymore. It's come out already. It's interesting because you had to go through this process, right? But there were also all of these things that had happened in the past that theoretically kind of opened the closet door already. Yeah, yeah. So, so for me, it wasn't like, oh, surprise. It was just like, there's no more ignoring it. You have a right. track record. Right. So. Right. And once you came to that realization, 
what did it feel like? Was it like, okay, now I have this big albatross that's off of me? Or was it a gradual thing? I feel like I was at the apex of it at 19. I felt like I was literally breaking apart. That's the only way I can describe it because it was like, no, this cannot be. I thought it was a face. <laughs> I thought it would grow out of it. Any um, anybody listening, it's not a phase. It's not a phase. It is not a phase. I hate that. Oh my gosh, that is literally the one of the things that can piss me off. You will literally piss me off if you say that a sexuality is a phase. This phase. What is it? What's a phase? Tybo was a phase. Like Tybo was a phase. <laughs> it's not a phase. And so once I faced the truth with the RA dude. I had to tell my father because my dad was the worst person to tell. And I'm a very much rip the bandaid kind of off kind of person. <laughs> I will face the hardest thing. I will do the harshest stuff because for me, it's like if I do this really tough thing that in my mind, it's like, okay, anything else is easier. I don't know why I do that, but I do that. And I knew it was like, well, nothing's going to be worse than telling dad. So I told dad and Basically, he kind of chummed it up to be like, well, you just haven't had that experience yet and you're just getting these emotions from this guy. And I knew someone who was like that and they had a whole situation where they got caught up with the guy and then they got together and stuff and it's really ended horribly and I don't want that for you. Just a phase. (laughs) And I was like, okay. And then that led to after college graduation, after the guy told me he didn't want anything to do with me in that regard, all those sort of things, like actually just facing the truth and coming out to friends about the situation and moving back home. And this is about three years later, but still had like feelings for the guy because he was around as far as like in my friend circuit, me and the guy were in a friend's wedding together. So it was like, we're still involved there's still some of a connection. And mm-hmm. even then when I would see him, I'd be like, oh, I wish you were mine. I still had sure. feelings and stuff like that. And me and my dad, we had a conversation about faith and religion and whatnot. And I was like, I ain't got faith. <laughs> he was like, why? Because of, I don't know what the word I use, but I made it clear that I'm talking about old dude. <laughs> right. and, and he was like, we're still on that. And I'm like, yeah. And if anything, we gonna be here. It's not just. It's not gonna be dude that I'm hung up on. But as far as like me having feelings for guys, right? That is a permanent thing. It's not a phase, Dad. I never was. Too. Never was. Yeah. yeah. And my parents, family knew because I remember I had like a real odd like sort of memory unlocked a couple of weeks ago where. I don't know if you are a fan of Pokemon or a bit aware of Pokemon the series. I'm a little old for Pokemon, but. <laughs> It's okay. (laughs) You probably would have seen the characters before, but the original series that came out in the 90s, Misty, the female character. Okay. uh, I had an affinity to her because she liked water type Pokemon because I like the water. I like ocean. I like all that stuff. So I had a more of a connection to her and her character than anything. Not because of like, oh, she's a girl. It's just because she was very much a tomboy. She wore short shorts and a tank top, but she was very much a tomboy. And she was afraid of bugs. And I am also afraid of bugs. So I really yeah, connected I, I don't her. really like bugs. I don't do them. If a spider <laughs> walked up in your apartment right now and was just sitting there chilling, what would you do? i kill it. I'll kill the bug. Oh, okay. All right. My instinct is to, ah! <laughs> it's to run, but I'm going to kill it. I live with two women. And... <laughs> 
<laughs> they'll call me to kill the bugs. And I'll be like, man, I don't want to, but I know it's me. <laughs> I gotta Look, kill it. if you have a a pair of slides, you just, I mean, you see the bug, you just grab the chancleta and you... Yeah, no, I do it. I'm very much... Yeah. Uh, tia, tia, I'll have my chancleta I just, <laughs> just you know, get it. Like that, that's that's nothing but a thing. Or if it's like a wasp, give me that wasp spray. I'm spraying everything. But going back to to the character Misty, yes. I had a Misty action figure. It was a Starmie for those who are Pokemon fans. And I was playing with it one day with my dad because my dad and my mom weren't together the first few years I was alive. They were separated, but they got back together around the time I was in middle school. So I was in a co-parenting situation. I mean, I would go to my dad's place on weekends and whatnot, and he would pick me up in his Mustang. And I remember we went to Blockbuster, and he saw me playing with the action figure, the doll, whatever you want to call it. And he just looked at me weird, like, why is this boy playing with this girl (laughs) and a starfish? (laughs) But his eyes, he judged me, but I knew as a kid that something was off because of, of me doing that. I knew that at a right. very young age. So going back to the, oh, we're still on that? Like in the future, I'm 22. And I'm like, no, I'm gay, dude. I'm gay. Dad, I'm gay. I've been gay for a while. I'm not the guy that you think I am. There have been very various signs throughout my entire childhood and adolescence. I am who I am. And I think that was a, one of the first few times he was like, this is not going away. Like, And we didn't talk for like a week or two. Wow. Um, I feel like he was really processing. He would go on his rides on his motorcycle. We would avoid each other. And then I eventually told my mom, because I was like, okay, I got to tell her now, because I haven't really told her. And she knew the guy, the RA guy, because she met him and talked with him. So she knew about him. Not as as far as we were dating, but she was aware of who he is. And so one night, I was like, hey, me and dad are not talking. And I could not get it out of my throat. (laughs) But I was like... I like dudes. I just kept saying, I like dudes. I, I couldn't say I was gay. That's the only thing I could get out. And Why was it easier to tell your dad than it was to tell your mom? It, I just felt like with my dad, the fear was more so like, is he physically going to attack me? Is it going to be a mm. violent reaction? And for me, it was just like, that's worse than getting the disappointment from my mom. Like, they're, they would hurt on equal levels, but for me, the immediate danger is like, is this man going to punch me? Is he going to throw me out? I need to know because anything else after that I can handle. But physical violence, I need to get that out the way. Because at the time, I must just say, <laughs> I wasn't comfortable as far as feeling comfortable that my dad was not going to assault me for being gay. I can lie and say, oh, yeah, my dad wouldn't hurt me because I didn't believe it. My dad, he was never physically violent to me at all but he showed signs of just like he could go there because my sister she would get disciplined often because she was bad mm-hmm. <laughs> and so i would hear that in the house and it just be, sounds so violent and i started to see that when we were younger because we were a blended family she has a whole different mother and we somehow came together but my mom was even when i got whoopings and stuff it was never that violent or never looked that or just felt that enraged but when my dad did it it felt like somebody was gonna die right so i always had this fear of me and my father like if we ever got into that type of situation that somebody was gonna die i never felt like my my dad is not gonna hit me my dad is not gonna punch me my dad is not going to assault me in any way he didn't 
but it, I never felt like he wouldn't. I wouldn't rule it out. So for me, coming out to him was like, look, hey, if we got to fight, then we're going to fight. I just rather get out of the way. My mom is like, all right. And we, when I came out to her, she just was like, I just can't accept it because I don't believe that you are. She came from the religious standpoint. And it was kind of like, well, mom, this ain't nothing new. And I was informing her, I was kissing boys in middle school. Right, right, right. Uh, and she even knew this guy, not my childhood best friend, but there was another kid in middle school that I befriended. We went to the same elementary school and middle school, and I had started to develop a crush on him. And I think he liked me too. Obviously, he liked me because he kissed me. But we started like playfully doing this little kissing thing in seventh grade. And my sister knew because I was at the point where I was like, I want to tell somebody that I have a little boy thing going on. But my sister would use it as blackmail because she knew that I couldn't be out. But fast forward, when I told her, I was like, yeah, I was kissing boys in middle school. She was like, who would you kiss it? And I was like, I'm not going to tell you because that's my business. Right. No. But she was like, it wasn't such and such, was it? And I was like, it was. And I was just saying <laughs> the name of the kid. I was All like, right. so you knew who the kid was this entire time. So right. why are we acting like this? Yeah, why are we having this conversation? Why are we even like, having this, this conversation? This ain't nothing new. This ain't nothing new. I've been kissing dudes since I was <laughs> out of diapers. Like, what's up, bro? <laughs> Right. I mean, your sons are back, man. Seriously, I mean, as a kid, he was a little player, player, player. He's funny. I wasn't even a player. I was very much the hopeful romantic. That's just not my vibe. But I am a lover. So, for her to have that reaction, it was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna let you have that because you got to process that. But you need to needed to know because that's what's going on in the house right now with me and dad. And it was a weird, weird time. But luckily, I got into NYU <laughs> to go to grad school. And it was the perfect time for me to move out and figure things out on my own, which I did. And around the middle of my first year, my late grandmother passed away. And before she passed away, I came out to her in the hospital because our birthdays are a week apart. So I would call Mm -hmm. her like either the day before or like right early in the morning just because I knew everybody was going to call her. But she called me and she was like, I need to see you. I haven't seen you in a while. And she never does that. She's the only family member to this day who never would barter me about like, you need to call me sometime. She's just like, yeah, just do your thing. (laughs) I know who you are. I love you. Do your thing. Call me when you call me. And so the fact that she was like, I need to see you. So I felt like, okay, nah, she's about to peace out of here because she was having a lot of health issues throughout the past that couple years. So I was like, yeah, she's about to leave, but I don't know when. So I went to go see her. It was New Year's Eve. We spent New Year's Eve with each other. So the way that I brought up the conversation was I was currently doing a long distance thing with a guy back in Atlanta. And it was not going well because the guy was not engaged with getting to know me on a more vulnerable level. He was interested, but also the long distance was kind of really not working to our favor. And he was also still in the closet. And it was weird because he's bisexual and he has a cousin who's transgender and I met them. So it was like, I think your mom would be fine (laughs) because I met his mom and his sister and his sister knew it from the jump. And his mom was like, oh, he has the prettiest dimples. And I'm like, oh, thanks, mom. Your son thinks so, too. Yeah, your son thinks so, too, you know? (laughs) So it was like, so what's the hold up here, bruh? And it was just a lot of, we weren't on the same page of things. Cause he thought I was just going to go to grad school and then move back. And I'm like, 
no, I'm moving to New York because I have to change my life. And I'm not about to stay back home when we haven't even established a relationship. So long story short, when I I was introducing that story to my grandmother, I'm like, how do you basically break up with somebody? (laughs) But they've been nice to you. It's not like a bad breakup, but you just know that they're not serving your needs. And she was like, well when I had a guy before I met your grandfather and I had to let him know I appreciate his respect and his kindness, but we were just going to have to end our time together. And she said it so soft and quietly. And I was just like, Grandma, I like dudes. (laughs) 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 I just had to get it out. I couldn't say I was gay because older people don't know that terminology. But as they would say, I'm from the South, so they would be like, I got sugar in my tank or... I'm a little sweeter. A little whatever, sweet. You know. mm-hmm. I'm a little sweet. Whatever the, the thing is, I was just like, I like dudes because we have lesbians in my family. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm the only out gay man in Same. my family. So it was like, yeah, I like dudes. And she was like, oh, I know, baby. I know. So it was like, thank you. Thank you for being the one family member who knows and is not surprised. I truly appreciate it. And we had a wonderful conversation. She was just like, does your mom know? And I was like, yeah, I told her. Can you convince her? Because she acted like she don't want to face the truth. I was like, how can you, her mother, see, and you had a hand in raising me. Right. <laughs> like every right. summer until I was 15, I would spend with her in North Carolina. So if you can see it and be cool about it, why can't everybody else and the only thing she she wanted for me and, she, and i always cherish this because it was our last conversations together was that she was like all i want for you is to find you a nice man have a couple kids and to live your life and i was like i'm trying grandma but i ain't ready for a husband yet i'm I, at the time i was 24 so i was right. like we ain't there <laughs> we, we still in grad school <laughs> it's a different time different time but she still wanted me to have the same things she would wish for any of her hetero grandchildren so, right on. So, that yeah. kills me is that your parents, like we were talking about cognitive dissonance earlier, and mm-hmm. it feels like that is cognitive. It's in their face and it's been present to them all this time. All this time. Um, but they're still like, I don't believe it. And I don't understand that point of view. You base your assumptions on people on their actions, right? So if someone is stealing money from you for years and then all of a sudden they rob a bank. Should you be surprised that that person then turned around and robbed a bank? Right. You would think. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's because they had to deal with it or they're still dealing with their own perceptions of what they wanted their son to be, who their son is and how to actually make peace with it and accept it on their own terms. I feel like a lot of people, friend and family, that knows me they're still in their own ways getting to an acceptance period and i'm waiting for them to accept me love me you shouldn't be no i got my life to live (laughs) yeah i feel Um, that i think that when people can't accept i mean it ain't really for you you take it or leave it pretty much yeah but it says more about them than it does about you and i think in a parental kind of situation i'm not gonna put words in anybody's mouth but i i think that they're more like, what does this mean for me, for what people will think of me as a parent, right? rather than what will this mean for my child? Yeah, it, it's a lot of worried about other people thinking, what about me? How does this reflect of me? And right. I carry that, I carry that burden so long. I literally just took that burden off earlier this summer. Good for you. Because I would, 
carry myself or portray myself as a perfect kid. I had great grades. I was in all the extracurriculars. I didn't make any fuss. I didn't get in any trouble. You took tri- I, trigonometry, man. I mean, hello. <laughs> Side, <laughs> cosine, and tangent, baby. <laughs> I was that kid. So I wanted to make sure, knowing that in my mind at the time, that being gay was my fatal flaw. So if that was going to be my fatal flaw, you're not going to say anything else bad about me. You can't say I'm not a good kid. You can't say I'm not a smart kid. You can't say I'm not fun to be around. I had this thing of showing up too much for people. Just to be like, oh, I'm here. If you need ever need a listening ear, call me in the middle of the night. I'll show up to all your stuff. Just being a cheerleader for everybody. Yep. Because in my mind, this is a survival technique. If they value me so much as a good friend, if they find out about this horrible thing that I'm gay, then they're still going to be like, well, you're gay, but I don't care because you do all X, Y, and Z for me. So you're still worth being around and I'm going to keep you around. And I would do that a lot for a lot of people. But when it came to my family, I have to present myself as this person still. I can't make mistakes. Or even if I'm gay, I can't be that gay or extremely feminine. Or I can't be extremely promiscuous. Like, I even get that with my family now. They're like, be careful out there. Like, it's very charged with don't be out here in these streets. Right. You know? Don't don't be a hoe and bring shame to the family. Don't be a hoe and bring shame to the family, right? <laughs> don't get HIV. Or my, my dad would say, don't get something that you can't get back or give back. <laughs> that was his way of saying it. And I was just like, my God. Or even like <laughs> my sister went said, and God love her. I know she was just trying, but she was like, okay, you can be gay, but don't be a bottle. And I'm like. <laughs> Which, Yeah. And I'm like, okay, yeah. okay, sis, I get it. I understood. She was 18 at the time. So we're younger. I get it. I see you. It's cool with me. But there were so many stipulations like, okay, if you're going to be gay, you can't be this type of gay. You can only be the acceptable gay. And I realized I took that on and I was not being authentic to myself. And I hate the word authentic, not hate the word. I feel like authentic is being overused. And it should just be your true self. Who are you? Well, you're not pretending. When you are at home, in your room, who is that person? And that person for me is, I am listening to all the pop hits, dancing, like I'm giving like a performance at Madison Square Garden, naked or with underwear, depending on the day, but mostly naked. And I am singing at the top of my lugs, not giving a fuck. And it, that's me. And that is who I am. I should be that person every day. But, I but Ty, do. what do your roommates think? Oh, well, my roommates don't know because I'm in my room when I do it. But when they're not there. (laughs) How big is your apartment that people? It's it's not big. It's a three bedroom. They can hear you singing. Oh, they do. They do. But I I live with another singer. So it's (laughs) so it's not a big deal. Okay, it's not a big deal. But I don't do it like if it's just screaming full force, like giving a concert. Now, if I'm in a shower. Yes, unfortunately, that's happening. And they have deemed it the Super Bowl. Like, are you doing a halftime show or are you just going to be in and out? That's too so funny. I carry that. And now I'm in the process of deconstructing my brain and perception of self to like, there's some parts that I'm like, I did like how that looked on me or how that felt about on me or how I expressed myself in that way. I want to keep that. But this, let's throw it away. Let's trade that in for something new. So I feel like I'm in a very Tetris building block Lego thing of like, who is Ty McKinney now? And yeah, that's what I'm currently doing. And how are you processing all of the 
negative feedback that you've received and all of the trauma over the course of your life from, I don't, I don't think parents or elders should necessarily be blamed because a lot of times they don't know better. And if you don't know better, you can't do better. Right. But at the same time, I do think that generational trauma, not just from like even a societal standpoint, from a parental and that type of caregiver standpoint is really real. And how do you turn around and then process all of this trauma and make sure to not bring it to the table with whoever your descendants end up being or your family, your chosen family, your friends? How do you not turn that into like sociopathy kind of? (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad you asked that question because that's a question that I've been not only asking myself, but making it a rhetorical question to our community, specifically the Black queer community, because that is a thing, generational trauma, not only from your personal family, but collectively through our generations. We have not had the opportunity, the space to just be ourselves and be free and just be. (laughs) I was about to say be normal, but that's not it. We just have to compress ourselves so much that we haven't even gotten a chance to just be even within our own communities, because we still have to deal with the patriarchy and heteronormativity that has seeped through and the toxic masculinity that seeped through. What I have done the past few years is going to therapy. I've been through four therapists, I think, <laughs> in my lifetime. Hey. Um, but I had to find the right one because the first time I had therapy was in college when I did have the big panic attack episode with RA Dude. And I, they told me I had to go to therapy for like 10 sessions. I think that's the student affairs like standard whenever you have either a panic attack or signs of depression where it was documented in the school system that you need to go get some help. And I picked a therapist that was black and Christian related mm. because that was also my issues. And it was funny in hindsight, looking back when I was telling her about my issues with the RA dude and stuff like that, I think she could tell that I had coming out issues. But she made it okay for me to say that I have this connection with this friend person and I don't know what to make of it. And she's like, that's okay to have strong feelings for that person. And I think she wanted to give me like a little out. She's like, I can't help you get through the door, but here's a little crack. I don't remember her name at all, but I do thank her for that. And the other two therapists I had before I got to the current one that I am, they were both white and queer. And they were good for their time frames that I was there for, but they were also white. And that was a factor that we kept bumping into because you're just not going to get the black queer experience. You're just not going to understand the nuances and the intersectionality that is my identity and my existence. You're not going right. to get it. We can come to common ground on things queer, but when it comes to my blackness, you don't get that. And so for me to get into the nitty gritty of my mind and my psyche, I don't feel even comfortable you going there with me. So Let me focus on trying to find a black therapist, ideally a black queer therapist, because they would definitely not say, understand my, my specific story, but they have their own and they can definitely tie the knots. There's identification. There's identification there. And luckily I found one. I love him. He's amazing. I've been with him for almost three years. And yeah, we've done some work, man. (laughs) And I also attribute to actually going to work out. My relationship with my body 
and just fitness in the gym. And it started off very toxic from even in high school and early college about trying to look good for other people, mm. particularly women at the time. I don't know why. I mean, I know why, because I was trying to impress this girl, quote unquote, trying to be like a dude or whatever, straight. And you were I'm trying like, to be that straight. Didn't work. I was trying to be yes. straight and obviously like, <laughs> no. <laughs> if you um, ain't straight, he, you can't be straight. I ain't straight. Most sexual. Gay as <laughs> hell. Gay as hell. Oh, Lord. But with the fitness thing, with my anxiety, it helps me specifically running, particularly running. It really helps me decompress and to just get all the, the stress out. And sometimes I channel it to go long distances. I can run up to five miles straight now. So, hey. hey, we're working up to that 10K. We're going to get there one day. So yeah, therapy, working out, and even medication. SSRIs, antidepressants and whatnot. And I had a first bout in 2017 when my grandmother died and I actually came out to the world, i.e. social media and the rest of my extended family. And that was literally one of the worst years of my life. Just down in the dumps, depression, suicidal ideations, you name it. All the while working two jobs, and going to grad school. Bad. Good Lord. <laughs> I am here by <laughs> the ancestral grace of God. But it, my anxiety was so bad that it was debilitating. And it's only been like that a few times in my life. My therapist at the time was recommending me to a psychiatrist because of how bad it was. And that's where I started taking meds and they made me feel like a zombie. Well, there's one med in particular. And I was like, nah, I can't do that. But then with the pandemic, my anxiety was also going back to the extremes where I was developing bouts of agoraphobia. It's the anxiety where you're afraid to leave your house. Okay. There's this movie with Amy Adams. She plays an agoraphobic. I don't know what the movie is, but if I see a representation in media, it's like that. Woman in the Window, it's called. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Google. We love you. <laughs> but I always had a, a a degree of agoraphobia ever since I was in high school. I was always afraid to go out into the world because I'm a black mm gay kid so i always felt like the worst thing could happen i could die or get beat up or something like that I could be attacked so i always had that fear since i was a teenager and it just amplified in different ways but it really amplified when i moved to new york because it was just felt like oh my god it's new york there's so many people we're in the center of a marvel movie at every moment and every time what could happen so i would just all automatically be in panic mode but then with the pandemic it took it up like 500 notches because i had to stay because my parents are immunocompromised. So we didn't have proper testing and stuff like that. So if I moved home or whatever, I had it and I exposed them, I could have killed them. Right. And so the the plan was I had to stay here, figure it out, basically. And so I was here with all those people dying and the streets empty. I walked Times Square when it was just really empty, like a scene in I Am Legend or The Walking Dead. And I thought it was a cool at first because I was like, I finally get to be in Times Square. There's no one around. But then after a while, it was like, oh, this is depressing. And I would begin to start drinking more and just, you know, everybody was drinking. So I was like, well, I guess I'm going to drink too, but I ain't going to drink in the morning. I'm going to drink at three o'clock. <laughs> Make me a nice glass of wine or a whiskey ginger or a hot toddy or whatever when it was the fall. And I realized I was using alcohol to calm me down my anxiety. I wasn't trying to get drunk. I was just trying to to silence the noise in my mind. Mm -hmm. And it became more apparent when, when things were starting to lift as far as the restrictions here in the city. And I was going out or starting to go out with friends and to dinners and stuff. And I went to this 
place in Harlem and I was freaking out because they didn't have like the barriers anymore. They took those away. So it's like how it was before. And I'm like, we're right next to people. I know they're eating chicken. I I see the spit coming (laughs) off the person's mouth. Like, oh my God. And I'm getting out. And this kind of like, I don't know when people can't see like my triggers because this person was aware that I have anxiety, but I don't think they knew how severe my anxiety actually is. I have physical tremors. One of my friends who was also a roommate of mine, she knows because she's known me for six years. And I'm like, you're anxious. And she knows what my tics are. And he just couldn't pick up on my tics because he was just talking about some nonsense. And I'm over here about to have a stroke (laughs) at the table. And I literally tried to get the bartender because I'm like, I need whiskey right now. (laughs) I need to calm down. down. I'm about to have a whole panic attack in front of the entire restaurant. And it was a very popular restaurant. And we were like in the center. Everybody's going to see. So that only further amplified my anxiety. But to bring it to a close, my current therapist, when I was relaying this information to him last fall, I was letting him know, I was like, hey, I I know this is happening. I'm not trying to make this a thing. I'm not addicted. I'm not like, I need this to survive, but I can see the codependency starting. I can see how long it's been going on and I want to not let it go far. He's been trying to like, hey, I recommend trying another bout of medication. Just try a different one just to open your mind because I don't want you to develop this codependency and it becomes an addiction and then we're in a whole different pathway and i'm like i ain't got time for that (laughs) and i don't want it to be the part of my life to where it's like oh my god alcohol it's a a villain in my life so reluctantly started back medication or after that dinner fiasco and more anxiety episodes and i was like all right we're gonna do this so started in march of this year i'm on lexapro for the mental health people out there no shame in saying it. I'm a Lexapro. No shame at all. <laughs> no shame at um, all. If I told and, you uh, all yeah. of the medications that I've been on over the course of my life, this show would be over. So <laughs> just, uh, that's a whole new segment. It'd be like credits rolling in in at the end of a movie. That should that should be like your sub segment, like meds <laughs> with Mike. On Mike Ergard, this toxicity. I talk about yeah. Here's the medication, and here's what it did for me. Like, let's see what it did for this other person. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's no shame in, in there's no shame in admitting that you need medication to get through a particular time in, in your life. There's no shame in saying that you were worried about using alcohol to self-medicate to a certain extent. I think a lot of people do that, myself included. And at least you had the presence of mind to be like, I don't want to take this to the next step. Because then the next step becomes dependency. Yeah. So kudos to you for having a presence of mind to be like, okay, this is where I want to get off this train. For me, it was a surrender. At first, it felt like defeat because I still had a little stigma in me about all in my head. I just need to work it out. I need to pray. I need to meditate. And I need to go to therapy. And I work out. I run five miles. I should be fine. (laughs) Sometimes you need to throw a little something extra in the recipe. You need a little extra. Once... My therapist and my psychiatrist, the, the one that I have, they're both black. I love having black mental health professionals. We need more of them in the world. Yes, so please. Mental health professional out here. We love you. We thank you. We see you. And we need more of you. Yes, 150%. <laughs> but both of them, they're like my left and right hand. They were like, hey, it's okay. You have done everything. 
in your power to make sure that you are healthy. It's not a minute of defeat. This is just, you need a little bit of extra kick. It's okay. And my psychiatrist, she was basically saying, your brain is not producing enough serotonin. <laughs> it's literally a chemical thing. So I'm on the lowest dose, I think, of Lexapro. And if I needed to increase my dosage, depending on the situation, I can. But we're just going to start showing that for a couple months and then we go from there. But it's very much normalized. Everybody's brain is different. Your brain does this. And that's why you stay in a state of anxiety or paranoia because you could get the best sleep in the world. You're still going to feel a little bit anxious. And that's happened to me before. I've slept like 11, 10 hours or, or nine hours. And I'm rested, but hmm, I'm still feel like something's off. I'm not at ease. Everybody's different. Everybody's brain is wired differently. You're going to have different issues than this other person has issues. And everybody's got their thing. And that made me feel more comfortable with taking the meds. And when I started taking them, it was like, oh, this is what normal feels like. <laughs> Holy <laughs> shit. I kept explaining that to my, my people who knew who mm-hmm. I was, because I was very still much like, you don't need to know my medication because I don't feel comfortable t- saying that. But then now I've gotten worked through that. And I'm like, no, hey, I'm a Lexapro lover because it helps me stay afloat. Own that uh, shit. Yeah, I own it. And I feel like not only just for my journey, and going back to your original question, how I have gone through and made peace with certain traumas. And there's still traumas I'm working through. I'm still in therapy. I go every week. Thankfully, I have the access and the res- to that resource yes. to do that. Yeah. But I do what I can with what I have. So I'm in therapy every week. I work out three to four days a week. I take my meds every day. And I'm learning now to that owning my story and changing the narrative from victim to victor is is key for me to be in this, even talking to you and be like, hey, no, I'm doing my work to make sure I'm okay and going through the trauma that was being a black gay kid and still being a black gay man. Um, I'm working through it, but I feel like that's what everybody has to do, regardless of your sexuality or your race, identity. Everybody's got to work today, shit. We all got shit we got to work through. We all got shit. Even yeah. the rich people got shit. That's why they're miserable still. <laughs> It's true. (laughs) Only difference between us and them is that they have the power to make other people's lives miserable or project their misery on other people. They can project their misery at large. Yes. Because they have the means to. Yeah, but ain't not one of them happy. Ain't not one of them happy. You best believe if I'm happy and I'm rich, (laughs) it's going to be like Oprah. You get a car. You get a car. You get a car. You get a a trip. And I just feel like that's me on an intrinsic level. I get so bent out of shape when I can't give something to like one of the homeless people out here or even the subway performers when they perform and they'd be like having their hats out and stuff. I'd be like, man, if I had cash, you'd get it right now because I get what you're doing. I see you out here. You're good, because it's showtime on the train, and I start turning the music on my phone up. Oh, I turn away. I do not give, like, freely, but it hurts because I just want to. But it's like, nah, look, I'm, I know you're showtiming right now, but it's also 9 o'clock in the morning. I got to go to work. Right. Or I'm trying to have my moment of zen, and you ruin it, trying to do your gymnastics right now. Like, the <laughs> Valley is down south. If you're trying to do the pole thing, go down there. But, Yeah. I would be that person. I'd be like, you get a car, you get a scholarship, yeah. you get this, you get a house. That would yeah. be me if I was I, rich. I feel like when you have some kind of reward, if you're a good person, you want to share that reward with other people. Yeah. You don't yeah. want to prevent other people from getting stuff unless that other person is an asshole, in which case, yes, you want to prevent that person from getting specific things. That part. But <laughs> you, you want to take care of your people. Yeah. 
and usually who, for me, yeah. but it's, I want to take care of black queer people. That's like my, I would say my freedom mission. <laughs> okay. Uh, my freedom dream for our community, the black queer community to be just able to be and to have not only the representation that we want to see, but we have the financial equity, we have the structural equity in place to live our lives fully. So that means we have great health care. We have equal representation and protections in the workplace. We have all the things that straight people should have right. as Black queer people. We should have that. And that's my freedom dream for us all, like that we just just be. We can be other, but we're not treated as othered. Right, right. I'm going to ask one last question. This just popped into my head as you were talking. Modeling behavior is really, really important, I think, for people who are afraid. There are a lot of people in the closet, and they need people to give them the freedom to be themselves, right? Somebody has Mm -hmm. to kick the door open for them. And I, there's a part of me that feels a way about that. And then there's a part of me that also is like, look, I needed people to model behaviors. I needed someone to tell me that they went to therapy before I was like, well, cool, I'm gonna go see a therapist. Mm -hmm. Was there someone who modeled behavior for you that made you into the person that you are today? On the top of my head, no. I want to say there was fragments of people who collectively made me who I am. But as far as a person who I'm very grateful for, it's like, nah. Because I, I think it was just me. It was the future version of me. And I just knew I, what I didn't want to be at, at a certain age. I didn't want to be closeted. I didn't want to have this whole... I married with a couple of kids and I got my secret lover on the side. And fucking up multiple people's lives now. Multiple people's lives, because I've seen that. And I'm like, I don't want that. I don't want my life to be that. I don't know what it is on the other side of me living my truth, but I know it's better than living in this bondage. So whatever the fuck I have to do to get there, I'm going to to make that happen. I wouldn't say there was just nobody, but there was... I guess my supervisor at the time of my resident advisor days, this guy's name was Nick. He was my resident hall director and he was gay. He was white. He was Italian, but he just saw me. He got me. And I think he understood without even me having to say that I was trying to come out, but he got me. And I remember he got a new job and I cried. Aww. I wailed. Cause I was like, that's my dude, man. At the time when he was a hall director, he was my age now. So we weren't too far apart in ages, but he was an adult adult. Right. And I'm like 19, 18, 19. <laughs> but he also had issues with his dad about his sexuality because he would relay that information when we had those conversations about identity and sexuality and RA trainings and whatnot. And I remember his parents came to visit him and he brought them to our little staff meeting that we would have every week. And his dad, you could tell that he had a sort of like reformation or transformation with their whole story because they would talk about it. And his dad showed him so much love and so much support and just seeing that relationship and just seeing him and he's not a perfect gay guy, but seeing how he moved, how he dressed, how kind he was and how sweet he was. He was very talented. He was also handsome. So he was a person in college that was very much a part of my makeup. Like, okay, this is possible. I just hadn't seen him black yet, but it's possible. And there's representations in TV. So Noah's Ark, God's gratefulness to Patrick and Polk. Because <laughs> if it wasn't for him creating the things that he made, I didn't, wouldn't think I'd exist. Right. So, and I've gotten to tell him that in person one time. I met him. Oh, that's amazing. 
yeah, I met him at a seminar kind of thing a few years ago, like 2017. And I was like, thank you for making all the things you do. I sneak and watch it in my parents' living room because I had parental controls on my TV and I could watch Logo. But thank you for making this because I wouldn't be here talking with you because I just didn't see that representation for Black queer people. Right. And Frank Ocean, because there's a specific type of Black queer artist that's always pushed in the media. It's been around for a long time. This is what is deemed as being Black and gay and is acceptable. And Frank Ocean definitely flipped the script. And at first, I wasn't really a Frank fan um, because I didn't know anything about Odd Future or anything that he was a part of. But when his mixtape Nostalgia Ultra came out, that's when I fell in love with him. And I was like, oh my God. And then when he came out, I was like, what is, what is this? Like, and he didn't even name a label. It was just like, what are you even saying? Are you just using this to make your album go platinum or something? I was so, so <laughs> in the closet. But I do have to give him props too. Like if I ever met him, I would say Forrest Gump and Bad, Bad Religion, Religion, those two songs. I would cry to bad religion in my dorm room because I was in love with the RA dude. So I'm like, I could never make him love me. I was singing that in my tub, just having a whole like breakdown. Like that song, in a way it saved my life because even though it was a very sad song, it allowed me to truly feel all the feelings that I felt about actually having feelings for another man. And it validated it. It validated it. So... Yeah, so I have to say, Nick, from from my RA days, Patrick and Polk, for just even before I was in school, in college, just seeing Noah's Ark and all the other movies he's made, The Skinny, Blackbird, Punks, all the things, and uh, Frank Ocean, for sure, That those two songs, but specifically Bad Religion. So, Frank, if you ever listen... <laughs> and you hear this podcast, Frank, first of all... Give me a holler so you can be on this podcast. Be on the podcast. Come on, be on the podcast. I'll help set up and everything. But (laughs) Ty McKinney and Mike Joseph both want to thank you for, yes, for making Bad Religion. Because that song, I like hearing you talk about it, like makes me emotional. Like that, Mm. that song hits me in a real, real, like Mm. funky spot. A funky spot. It's a funky spot too. It's just like, oh, I can only listen to it now and like, in a weird nostalgia kind of way, because I don't, I'm never, I'm not in the space where like, oh, like if I have a failed attempt at dating a guy, I don't get that sad anymore. But with that specific song and that time where I was with this guy, I was like, I was so like trying to do everything I could to make this dude like me and make him like say he wanted me, and I could not do it. So I was like, I am at that low point where I've gave given everything that I had, and. And it wasn't enough, so I was like, "Oh no, that's 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 a whoo." So it reminds me now. I'm like, "Oh man, you can you can love, man. You can, you can. really love. You, you can. can, but don't don't ever get that low, okay? <laughs> don't get that low for a dude ever again. Nah, not worth that. it. Not worth it. Not worth it. Stand up. That's right. That's right. Super appreciative of Ty for sharing his thoughts and walking us through his journey. Uh, There is more to come for Ty. Uh, I hope to have you on again and uh, look forward to hanging out with you in the future. Folks who are listening, if you want to know a little bit more about Ty, you can follow him on social media. He is on both Instagram and Twitter at Ty McKinney. And I'm going to spell that out for you all. That is T-Y-M-C-K-I-N-N-I-E. Thanks again, Ty. Appreciate you.
Thank you for listening to Detoxicity. I hope you found this particular episode interesting. And if you are new, I hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes. Uh, once again, my name is Mike Joseph. I am the host and producer of this show. And uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission, continue to support this podcast. Uh, follow me on social media. I am on Instagram, Twitter, and I'm on TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out, uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. You get access to exclusive episodes. You get episodes a little earlier than the general public. You get a cool-ass sticker. Lots of stuff. Once again, Patreon.com slash DetoxicityPod. Quick shout out to Calvin Williams for providing the music and uh, doing his magic on the logo, which was originally designed by Jacob Block. I thank you all for listening. I wish you all the best. Please take care of each other. Till next time. Peace. Peace.